We love Sunday nights. We come together and just open God's Word to end the Lord's Day and really start our week off and attempt to be faithful and live for the Lord. I want to have you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy 29, and it might be easier to turn to chapter 30 because we're going to consider the last verse of Deuteronomy 29 which is verse 29. Deuteronomy 29, 29, and I'll just read this and then we'll begin to look at this text and those around it. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There have been over the years many popular interpretations to this verse. I I would put it in the top 20 verses generally ripped out of its context and uh, certainly uh, put on Christian paraphernalia for decades. Some say that the secret things most importantly, refer to the timing of the second coming of Christ. Interesting thought, but not here in the text. Others say that anything that belongs to us is to be cared for and used properly. And so it's a verse about proper stewardship. Others say that we are to pass on what God has shown in his word to our children. True. Is that what this verse is about, though? Many variations to little parts of this verse, but probably the most popular and most overarching interpretation is very simply that anything we don't understand, anything we don't grasp, anything for which we don't have answers, we simply remember the secret things belong to the Lord our God. And that is true. It provides comfort for us. It's most definitely, at the very least, a valid application to this text. But that's the most popular interpretation. Well, I don't know what this is doing in my life right now, so the secret things belong to God. And that's fine. But is that what Moses is saying? Is is this just suddenly a a little proverb parachuting down into the middle of the law of God, saying, by the way, if you don't understand anything, then that's fine. Is it simply a broad, don't worry about the things you can't understand? I don't think so. As a matter of fact, this is a very specific admonition. This is a very specific way of living as a faithful follower of God. So what does Deuteronomy 29, 29 mean? Well, we're going to work our way toward that understanding. We're closing in here on the end of Deuteronomy, God's restatement of his covenant with Israel. Now to the second generation, his people are here on the plains of Moab preparing to cross the Jordan and at God's directive to take back the land which rightfully belongs to them while being God's instrument of judgment on the wicked Canaanite peoples. And so they're ready for this. And Moses, as recorded in Deuteronomy, has been preaching a series of sermons to them. And this written form is in the structure, as we've talked about, of the ancient Near East treaty, the suzerain vassal treaty. And so far in this structure, we've seen in Deuteronomy, the preamble and historical prologue, that was the beginning. We've seen the general stipulations of this covenant headed up by the repeat of the Ten Commandments in chapter 5. We've seen then the specific stipulations, the working out of the Ten Commandments in daily life, 
from chapters 12 to 26, really the meat and the heart of Deuteronomy. And then we saw the blessings and curses in chapters 27 and 28, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Now, when you get to the end of a contract, a covenant, what do you normally need? You need witnesses. And this is the same for an ancient Near Eastern covenant. The, the covenant is witnessed, sort of the ancient Near East version of a document being notarized. These are the witnesses seen in chapters 29 through 32. Chapter 29, verses 2 through 16, we see the people themselves are witnesses. They're called upon to witness that this is happening, that God is giving them the law and making covenant with them. Chapter 29, from verses 22 through 29, or 28 rather, the future generations of Israelites, and in fact, people from other nations and other lands are called upon to be witnesses. Chapter 30, verse 19, heaven and earth itself are witnesses. Chapter 31, the law of God itself is a witness. Moses is a witness. And then in chapter 32, Moses teaches Israel a song which will act as a witness. And we've talked about this before, teaching a song that that when they're disobeying, the song is in their cultural memory, and they see that they're witnessing against themselves. But our focus tonight is on chapters 29 and 30, taking this ultimately back to the central feature of chapters 29 and 30, right in the middle, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, what is this? Well, it's right in the middle of this section of 29 and 30, and it comes at us like a, like a person that has a rope tied to each one of their arms. And there, there's a tension, there's a pull. One rope is pulling a person toward life and blessing, and the other, person, other rope is pulling a person toward death and destruction. And so I want to examine this tension, this pull, that Deuteronomy 29.29 really represents. We'll do two of them. The first tension is this. We might be headed for destruction. We might be headed toward destruction or for destruction. That's the rope pulling toward destruction. Now, let's talk about this for a bit. You recall that we've seen in chapters 27 and 28, the blessings and the curses section of the covenant. And now chapters 29 and 30 outline the very real possibility of each one. Look with me at chapter 29. We'll begin in verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab. Besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horeb, that is Mount Sinai. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. And so the people themselves here, all of Israel is gathered together, and that's going to be very important throughout this message to picture all of Israel, all the men, all the women, all the children there gathered to hear this. They're witnesses to the great things that God has done for them. But verse 4 indicates that the people are not capable of seeing this yet with spiritual eyes. They're, they're not new covenant believers with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like we enjoy. And so Moses gives them further evidence of God's faithfulness 
and care for them. In verses 5 through 8, he reminds them that in the 40 years of their wandering in the wilderness, God miraculously kept their, their clothing from wearing out. Even their sandals didn't wear out. All their food and their drink was miraculously provided directly from God. They had been set aside as holy to the Lord, as symbolized by not partaking in wine or in strong drink. And God had defeated upstart kings before them and given their land to some of the tribes of Israel. Then we pick up in verse 9. Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. Now, in verses 10 through 14, we want to be very clear here. Moses is standing before every person of Israel. Large, large, huge crowd. Verse 10, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders and your officers and all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and whoever is not here with us today. In other words, this covenant is for everyone in attendance, and for the future generations as well. Now this sounds great, right? Sounds wonderful, sounds like a great thing. But bearing in mind the blessings and curses of the previous two chapters, Moses, his, his previous sermon to Israel, he begins to give warnings with increasing intensity. And they get worse and worse and worse. The first warning, beware of open idolatry. Beware of open idolatry. Verse 16 You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Everyone worships something. There's no one who is worshipless in this world. Everyone worships something. And the one who is enticed to turn away from the Lord then is tempted to worship the gods of their neighbors. Now, in our context, I've never had to deal with a professing Christian that set up an altar to Baal in their home. But make no mistake, anyone who turns away from the Lord or appears to be turning away from the Lord is always turning toward an idol of their own making every time. That's the only reason. And ultimately, this could show that someone never belonged to Christ in the first place. And so the first warning is beware of open idolatry. This is, this is the idolatry you can see. But the second warning gets increasingly more intense. The second warning is beware of secret hypocrisy. Beware of secret hypocrisy. And this is worse. The middle of verse 18, beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This is the person who says, I can play church. I can fake this. 
I can make this look good. I can play follower of God. And what does Moses call this? A root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. A a root leads to the rest of the tree. It poisons the rest of the tree. Meaning that someone who harms and poisons those around them, fully believing that God won't find out and God won't discipline, as long as it's secret. Now, this may sound familiar to you if you know your New Testament, because the writer of Hebrews refers to verse 18 when he says in Hebrews 12, 15, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. In your English Bible, Hebrews 12, 15 probably has the phrase root of bitterness in quotes, quoting Deuteronomy 29, 18. Now, while it is wonderful to preach, you should watch out for bitterness in your heart. That is not what Hebrews 12, 15 is talking about. Hebrews 12, 15, this root of bitterness is not speaking of your personal upset feelings toward another person. That's another warning for another day. But no, the root of bitterness, keeping the context of Deuteronomy 29, 18 intact, the root of bitterness is the fake, is the fraud who causes harm in the church because the reality is that his or her spiritual condition is a sham. And so the writer of Hebrews says, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, meaning salvation by grace alone through faith alone must be continually preached such that people examine their own hearts and they're not found to be hypocrites. This is a word which Jesus always used to refer to false believers. If you were here this morning, you will notice that I made a plea with the gospel to church members because there's the potential for that root of bitterness, the false believer. And so we continually preach grace. What happens when there's enough secret hypocrisy? The end of verse 19. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. In other words, God's discipline of the nation will hurt not only the false, but the true believer. And we understand this because when wickedness goes unchecked, a lot of people get hurt, even those who are following after the Lord. And so they are to beware of open idolatry. They are to beware of secret hypocrisy. The third warning gets even more intense. Beware of being apostate. Beware of being apostate, of being a false believer. Verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. So what does this mean? That maybe while the whole nation is under this sweeping away, that even the righteous get harmed because they're, they're in the vicinity of so many apostates. Ultimately, though, the individuals whose faith was false will be judged as individuals. But if there's enough of them, then the whole nation suffers. If there's enough, then everyone suffers. And then there's a fourth warning, the ultimate intensity Beware of the coming eviction from the land. Beware of the coming eviction from the land. Verse 22, and this is worth reading this whole section. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, 
when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, in which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What caused the heat of this great anger? Then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt and went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted to them. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath and cast them into another land as they are this day. Now, this section leaves us with a bit of a puzzle. And that is this. Is God already predicting a done deal? Is this a certain prophecy that Israel is doomed to experience these horrors in the future? Now, from the rest of Old Testament history, we know that they did experience severe and cataclysmic discipline. But put yourselves in the sandals of the Israelites at this very moment, hearing this from Moses. It's just just the father and, and and a wife and some children, and they're standing there before Moses, and and maybe even their animals are around them. They don't know what's actually coming, but this sounds like a done deal. What are they to think? Or is it a conditional prophecy? Just like we saw in chapters 27 and 28, these horrific terrors would only come upon them based on covenant treachery and unfaithfulness. Or is it, Sort of a hypothetical situation that's just an example of what could come upon Israel for covenant unfaithfulness. Something to let them know how serious their disobedience really is. This is a very important question. Because if this is a done deal, if this is a foregone conclusion, then what is the Israelite gathered with his wife and with his little children and with his animals who's just wanting to enter into a new home, wanting to settle into a new life, What's he supposed to do? Are they supposed to dread the future because of this certain coming judgment? Is he supposed to sit down with his children and say, you should be depressed and you should be horribly down because God is going to destroy us at any moment? Well, let's back away from this for a moment and then we'll move closer again. There are certain predictions in the Old Testament that are, we might consider anchors. They're bedrock predictions that, that fly at a much higher altitude than the predictions here in Deuteronomy 29. The anchor or bedrock predictions would include things like prophecies of a coming Messiah, a king to rule on David's throne, the Abrahamic covenant, which is unconditional, the eventual coming of a new covenant, the eventual coming of a new heaven and a new earth. None of those anchor or bedrock predictions have anything whatsoever to do with covenant faithfulness. It has nothing to do with what God's people do. Under the Israelite or the Mosaic or the Old Covenant, first given at Mount Sinai, now here reiterated on the plains of Moab, that has, that has no bearing on those anchor, those bedrock Predictions because they're utterly unconditional. No matter what, those are going to happen. 
But the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, these are prophecies that are driven by conditionality, by conditions. And as we saw in the last message, if they obey the Lord and keep his law, then blessings will come upon them. And if they rebel, then curses will come upon them. That's inherently a condition. Now, just to be very clear, none of the curses on Israel imply a permanent destruction of Israel. The, the permanent existence of the nation of Israel is already guaranteed through the Abrahamic covenant, which predates God's covenant through Moses. It's an unconditional covenant. But the happiness and the welfare and the living conditions of Israel are conditional. Let me give you two examples of times that God gives conditions he sets up within his overarching sovereign plan. The first example, you don't have to turn there. I'll just describe it to you. Jeremiah 18. In Jeremiah 18, God sends Jeremiah to the house of the town Potter, the guy who makes the clay pots. And Jeremiah is to sit there and watch the potter working. And Jeremiah observed that a vessel, a pot that the, the potter was working on was ruined. So the potter simply took it off and squished it all up and started a new one. This was an object lesson for Jeremiah, and God taught him this. Jeremiah 18, beginning of verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. Now therefore say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. What's the implication? Return and repent and that disaster that God is shaping will not come upon them. Let me give you a second example, one you're more familiar with. In the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to the Assyrian capital of Nineveh to threaten the destruction of Nineveh if they don't repent of their wickedness as a city. Jonah's message was the simplest sermon ever preached. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let us close in prayer. That was it. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, let me stop right here for a moment because I have to make this point. Why is God sending an Israelite prophet to a Gentile nation? Why is he sending an Israelite prophet to the Assyrians to give Gentiles a chance to follow God? Because Jonah lived in a time when Israel's apostasy was at its peak. And so God gave a picture of the fact that he is perfectly willing to turn to the Gentiles. Do we have a picture of that today? The church of Jesus Christ. It's a little side note there. What did Nineveh do? Much to Jonah's chagrin, Jonah 3 verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
And he issued the proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. That's repentance. You get the family dog covered with sackcloth. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so this is, a, again, a prophecy that God was going to destroy Nineveh, yet it was conditional. The people repented, and God relented. Now, keeping in mind that the Israelite covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had a built-in expiration date at the cross, when the new covenant in Christ was inaugurated, we have to know that whatever nature the predictions of chapter 29 are, they are temporary. We already saw last week that God's overall intention is to create a lasting and an eternal Israel under the new covenant in Christ. But once again, where does that leave the poor family standing in front of Moses with the wives and the children and the animals and, and hopes just to live a life that's pleasant and productive before God? I know that it's interesting to present the overarching plan of God, but the question might be, we might put it in these terms. That's great. Love the overarching plan of God. What am I supposed to do on Monday? And so let's rejoin these families of Israel, feeling the the terror of what could come upon them or upon their descendants. And basically, there's three options of how they could take this. The first option, again, this is certain predictive prophecy. That these calamities are most definitely coming upon Israel in the future. And in fact, according to verse 22, it could be as soon as the next generation. That their children who rise up after you could see the afflictions of the land, the sicknesses with, with which the Lord has made it sick. Now, I think it's very easy for us to take this view because as we read the rest of the Old Testament, we see that at least the temporary destruction of Israel did in fact happen, didn't it? So it's very easy to take that view of certain predictive prophecy. But remember, you're the family standing there hearing Moses and you're about to start your new life and Moses says, don't even bother, you're about to be destroyed. The second option, it's conditional prophecy like I outlined above with those two examples that this is like any other prediction of covenant blessing or cursing, an indication of divine intention depending on the faithfulness of the Israelites. And then the third option is, well, this is just hypothetical. This is just, uh, you know, big scare talk. That this is a, a reasonable scenario to help them see the seriousness of the covenant. That this would be something like a, a father telling a child that I'm going, to, I'm going to fly you from a flagpole. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do horrible, terrible things to you just to sort of make a point. So let's narrow this down. This might surprise you, but this cannot be certain predictive prophecy. Why not? Look at verse 23. The whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. How did God overthrow Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim? With fire from heaven destroying the land. 
Now, when the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, they certainly did render the land unusable in many ways. But we can't say that verse 23 was fulfilled literally to the level of the other burning of the land like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it can't be certain predictive prophecy because that's not what happened. It can't be view number three, just a hypothetical scenario, because if it's just hypothetical, it doesn't matter anyway. And the Israelites aren't going to take this as hypothetical. They have seen the Lord working and they would not believe that God speaks in hypothetical language. So the best option is the second view, conditional prophecy based on covenant obedience or covenant treachery. But that still leaves us with the problem of verse 23, doesn't it? That the land would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, a wasteland that it could never be used again. So what do we do with that language? What do we do with that sort of prophecy? Well, we would put this in the category of prophets making a broad, picturesque statement to send the message, I'm going to be very clear that bad news is coming. This is what some theologians call stereotypical language. Stereotypical language is basically a broad stereotype that's used. We know it's stereotypical because it's used in multiple places. In other words, it is a language that says a really, really bad thing is going to happen if you don't obey. Now, in this case, we see the same language, for example, used in Isaiah 13, a series of oracles against Gentile nations that have refused to submit to God's will. One of the nations against whom God prophesies is Babylon. He says that the Medes and the Persians are going to come against them. Listen to the prediction in Isaiah 13, verse 19. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. Same language as here in Deuteronomy 29. What is this? It's It's language to say that I am going to do something horrible to you and we all understand that's what he's talking about. What actually happened to Babylon? Well, Babylon was overthrown by the Persians actually with relatively few casualties. Cyrus invaded Babylon in secrecy and with inside help. In fact, Daniel chapter 5 records the actual night that this happened. So what does become like Sodom and Gomorrah mean? Well, it's stereotypical language in a conditional prophecy in which God says bad, 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 bad things are coming if you are unfaithful and you reject my love and devotion to you. And frankly, as far as the the coming generations which did in fact incur the wrath and the judgment of God, Israel might as well have been burnt to a crisp because they weren't allowed to live there anymore. It didn't matter anymore. Now, the bottom line is that the Israelite, there before Moses, with his family, and with hopes for the future, they're hearing this language of utter threat and destruction, that even the next generation could be witnessing the destruction of the nation. So what are they to do? How are they to think about this? Tension number one, we might be headed for destruction. But tension number two, pulling the other way, we might be headed for blessing. So destruction on one hand and the second tension, we might be headed for blessing. Now we run into exactly the same prophetic issue in chapter 30. Only now the conditional prophecy of doom and destruction, while it seems like this is definitely going to happen, this prophecy of doom is now predicted to be undone for blessing to come back upon Israel. Chapter 30, verse 1. 
And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the othermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your cattle and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and the statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Oh, that sounds so much better. Doesn't that sound better? Now, remember that last week we saw that ultimately this won't happen until the new covenant in Christ. And when Israel as a nation turns to Christ, which Zechariah 12 says happens in the future at the end of the Great Tribulation. Did you hear the clear new covenant language here in verse 6? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. That is the, the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But now we're much more in the realm of unconditional prophecy concerning the final outcome that if in fact Israel disobeys and all the curses come upon them, there will be a happy ending anyway. Great, terrific. I'm standing here before Moses with my wife and with my kids. What does that mean for me? We're standing with these families and Moses is telling them that in the next generation, Israel could be decimated. And yes, also In centuries and centuries and maybe thousands of years later, God will bring our people back together for blessing and regathering. Fabulous. But put yourself in the sandals of the man with his wife and with his kids saying, look, I'm a farmer. I I just want to know what I'm supposed to do right now. How am I supposed to deal with the fact that God may or may not utterly destroy the land, that my own children might even see this? What am I supposed to do with the fact that this people might be destroyed and that someday, yes, he will definitely bring our nation back together like a thousand years from right now. I just want to know what to do now when we settle into a new hometown, when I plant seeds and when I raise livestock and when we have children and when we build a home, what am I supposed to do now? You have put before me that our nation may be destroyed or it may be blessed. What do I do? We've said before that the law of God points us to the fact that God's standards cannot be met. In Romans 7, Paul describes his pre-Christian self, a man still under the law, yet not able to keep the law to perfection. This was frustrating to him. And we know that while there is an internal reality of faith to the true believing Israelite, they certainly didn't have the benefit of the indwelling Holy Spirit to give the fruit of the Spirit 
And yet at the same time, we think of the writer of Psalm 119 who said that the law is good, that he loves the law, the law keeps him, the law protects him. And so we know the law cannot save, no one can fully keep this law, and so Christ had to come to make sacrifice for our sins. But that doesn't mean that the faithful Israelite with a heart for God didn't live under the law and didn't dutifully do his best to keep the glorious law of God and Yes, part of the law is the seeming continual offering of sacrifices because of sin to provide some level of temporary atonement for the moment. Nothing that can even come close to comparing to the great work of atonement given by Christ, of course. And in fact, for the rest of chapter 30, God encourages the faithful Israelite to keep the law. Yes, fully knowing that no one can keep the law to perfection. But to see the law as God's blessing, to see the law as God's kindness to Israel as a way to live faithfully before God. Listen to God's positive attitude toward his own law. Chapter 30, verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear and hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Now again, so that you can do it is not an an expectation that the faithful will be a perfect law keeper. That's not possible as sinners. And yet the sinner can have an attitude toward the law that's righteous. Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. And so God summarizes the choice that he's really presenting All the way since chapter 27, verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them. I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. There's the tension again. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him. For He is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Now, you're the average Israelite. You've grown up wandering in the wilderness. You've begun raising your own family You're about to go fight the Canaanites for possession of the land that God deeded to Abraham 600 years earlier and God has presented this unbearable tension. We might be headed for destruction or we might be headed for blessing. Which one is it? It's like walking through a landmine landmine field and, and every step that you take could be the last. Are my children 
going to be working the land that I inherit? Are my grandchildren going to be working the land that I inherit? Will they have peace and protection in this glorious theocratic nation faithful to God? Or will my children and grandchildren be murdered, raped, stolen, enslaved by foreign nations, dragged off never to see their home again? I mean, all this prediction of blessing is far away and and, and it's nice, but what am I supposed to do? Will my life be characterized by destruction and doom? Or will it be characterized by blessing and delight? Will I plunge a sharp plow into fertile ground or will the spears of my enemies be plunged into the bellies of my babies? Will I look in peace over a land I have worked for decades or will I look in agony as my children rebel and are carried away from the land that I loved? Are these terrible things definitely going to happen to us? Oh God, how can I possibly enjoy my life? How can I possibly have peace if I don't know what you're going to do? Why won't you tell us for certain what's going to happen? Why won't you tell us these things? God's answer is, those things do not belong to you. That knowledge does not belong to you. That understanding does not belong to you. And what's God's answer? Moses gives it. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Those things are not yours to know. And so, the faithful Israelite asks, what am I supposed to do in the meantime since I don't know what's going to happen? What am I supposed to do? The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The answer is the same as it's always been. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. Live as law keepers out of love and devotion to God. How do I do this? Well, God's already said, chapter 15, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor. Chapter 16, keep the Passover to remember God's rescue of Israel. Chapter 16 and 17, only worship God in the ways he's prescribed. Chapter 17, put to death the unrepentant rebellious to keep the nation pure. And all the other outworkings of the Ten Commandments is recorded in Deuteronomy 12 all the way through 26. The answer is, concerning those future things that are too big for you, which belong to the Lord, those are His secret. In the meantime, obey what has been revealed to you. Can I put it to you this way? The issue is not, what does the future hold, but do what has already been made known to you. Do those things. Fulfill God's will according to what you know already. Be faithful today. Don't worry about the details of the future Focus on living in light of God's will today. Pursue God. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue obedience. Don't be distracted by angst and by worry for the future. Don't let that one thing block your view of God. In fact, there's a little commentary on Deuteronomy 29.29 found in chapter 32. Turn with me to chapter 32, right near the end, verses 46 and 47. One of the greatest words on bibliology in all of the Bible, by the way. This is a commentary on 29.29, chapter 32, verse 46. Chapter 32, verse 46. He said to them, 
Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that you may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to know. What does Deuteronomy 29, 29 mean for the new covenant believer in Christ? Well, the same principles hold true. The future is securely in God's hand and the majority of those details he's kept secret. They belong to him. Now, we have an advantage over the, the, the Jew standing before Moses with his family, don't we? We have the rest of the Bible. So we have a lot more information. Our New Testament revelation gives us much more information than the faithful Israelite had on the plains of Moab. But the details are really pretty sparse, even throughout the rest of the Bible. So how do we apply Deuteronomy 29, 29? Let me give you a, a couple of examples. Example number one, our current world. We live in a world that even in the last couple of years is beginning to look positively eschatological. It's beginning to look like the end times. Now, I know every generation of Christians says, well, we're in the end times. And I think we might be right this time around. We've had theological debates in the decades and centuries past as to what the mark of the beast in Revelation 13 will be, the forced mark by Antichrist by which he identifies people as his followers and anyone who won't receive the mark of the beast won't be able to participate in the free market economy. And we understand that this is certainly during the time after the church age when God has, will raise up new believers in Christ, the tribulation saints. We understand that. But it's interesting to me that we see our government getting ready to go door to door to present the gospel of COVID vaccination up to and including keeping the database of those who haven't taken the vaccine. We've seen massive media censorship of information related to the dangers of the COVID vaccine. Even a typical Google search will pop up almost all pro-vaccine information. Just try it and see what happens. Just to be clear, the COVID vaccine is not the mark of the beast, in case you were confused about that. And like anything else medical, it's your choice what you want to do. That's, that's up to you. It doesn't make any difference. But we're seeing firsthand a world that feels oppressive and feels Book of Revelation-like, doesn't it? In the context of the New Covenant, this is not the first time Christians have experienced oppression and pressure from the world in fact, that has been most of Christian history. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the meantime? There's a second example, more personal. You may personally be living a non-changeable reality. You may be living something that feels almost nightmarish, something that from a human standpoint seems like it will never be different. What do you do when your reality is a health issue that radically alters your life and probably isn't going to get better? What do you do when the pain of disappointing relationships is almost overwhelming? What do you do when your hopes and your expectations have been smashed into so many pieces that nobody would be able to put that back together again? What do we do in the meantime? The same thing God told Israel to do. You acknowledge God's divine right to withhold information from you. The secret things belong to you, God. I don't need to know. And you obey what you do know. The things revealed belong to us. That we may do all the words of this law. Now obviously as new covenant believers. We're not under the law of Moses. But we are under the law of Christ. 
And so in the meantime, what do we do? Jesus told us what to do in Matthew 6. He said, live one day at a time. Quit worrying about tomorrow. He gave us examples. See the birds in the air? They're not worried about anything. Be like them. We live in light of the future, but we don't live consumed by it, except to trust that the secret things belong to the Lord. We live what we know, the things revealed. I want to do one more thing with you tonight, just to drive this point home. I'd like to use part of the book of, of Philippians as an example for us. Turn with me to Philippians 1. Now keep in mind that Paul is writing while sitting chained to a Roman soldier, while under house arrest in Rome. And yet in this letter, he gives such practical wisdom on how to live faithfully now. We're not going to take very long. I'm just going to make a short example list for you. He's living in a time that would probably feel very much like today. So what do you do in the meantime? I'll just make a short list. Philippians chapter 1, the first thing we could say is be part of the gospel ministry. Be part of the gospel ministry. Philippians 1 verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to the rest and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Verse 27 of chapter 1. Right in the middle of the verse. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we don't know what's going to happen, but Paul says be part of the gospel ministry. We could add to our list and say love the church adamantly. Love the church adamantly. Chapter 1, verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You mean I'm going to get a knock on the door and some government official is going to try and twist my arm and sticking a needle in my my body that I don't want? Or maybe I do want it and I'm just glad they're there. Or maybe this is going to happen. Maybe we're all going to be wearing masks until Christ returns. Who knows what's going to happen? You mean I'm supposed to... Love the church? Yes. Why? Because that's what's revealed. Those are the things revealed. We could add to the list. Conduct yourself with Christ in view. Conduct yourself with Christ in view. Verse 10 of chapter 1. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 27 again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to work and to will to work and to work for his good pleasure. Be part of the gospel ministry. Love the church adamantly. Conduct yourself with Christ in view. We could add to the list, stop being so proud and selfish. Stop being so proud and selfish. Chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we could add one more to the list. Beware of being a difficult person. Beware of being a difficult person. Chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent 
children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. And we could keep making the list, but you get the idea. The things revealed are the things which God would have you to do, and the secret things are the things which God says are far too big for you to fathom. So do the things that you know. Do the things that you know. Your job is not to solve the unsolvable. Your job is to trust the Lord with the unsolvable and live for Christ in the meantime. Isn't that easier? That's so much easier. It's like bringing a little kid into a a construction project and you bring him in and you say, put your finger here, hold that. The little kid who's three doesn't say, could you tell me the structural qualities of this whole thing we're doing here? Tell me how this is held together. Why is my finger there? What's the little kid do? Okay. God says, put your finger here. Just obey. Don't worry about everything else. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is not just don't worry about the things you can't understand. It's a continual and daily acknowledgement that you are small, God is big, and that what he has asked you to do is not fret about his overarching plan, which is none of your business, but to seek and obey the word of God because he has revealed this to you. What was Paul's conclusion about his life? Philippians 1, verse 21 For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What does Paul have here? He has a detached curiosity. I wonder if I'm going to live or die. He doesn't care one way or another. He kind of edges toward, well, I guess I'll live because I can do some good still. My dad used to tell me that I was born worrying about the future. He said I worried more than my grandmother did, and that was a lot. When I was a little kid, about nine years old, I was traveling on a small camping trip with my dad and my brother. Nine years old, and as usual, I was worried about where we were going. I didn't feel my dad had what it took, apparently, to figure this out, even though I had never driven a car in my life. I had my ideas of where we ought to be going, and boy, did I continue voicing those worries and concerns. I had reasons, I had spreadsheets, I had charts, I had reasons. My dad pulled over to the side of the road, completely opposite in me in personality. We're out in the middle of nowhere and he got out and he just started throwing rocks into this meadow. Just picking up rocks and throwing them. Eventually I got out and I asked him why we stopped. He was still throwing rocks and he said, right now there are two bosses and we can only have one. So I'm going to keep throwing rocks until there's just one boss. You let me know who the boss is. And just kept throwing rocks. Christ is your Lord, not you. There is only one boss, and it can only be him. So do the things he's revealed and rest in the things that he has not revealed. They don't belong to you anyway. They're not yours. 
But one of the things he has revealed, without giving us a lot of detail, he has revealed the end of his plan for you as those who are in Christ. Here's the end of his plan. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He gave you that secret. He's given that much and that should be enough, shouldn't it? That should be enough. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you, Lord, to make us men and women of faith. To take the large and eternal and massive secret things and to leave them at your feet. Mysteries to be unraveled, mysteries certainly to be known in a later age. The questions of why, all wrapped up in that package of the secret things. Instead, you have said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And so I pray, Lord, that we would find peace and contentment, not in trying to figure out why you have allowed pain and anguish into our lives, but that you would bring peace and contentment by helping us to obey this day and to be peaceful this day and to plant as it were and to plow and to harvest this day and not worry about the growing clouds that may or may not be over the horizon fully knowing that you will accomplish our salvation that you will finish that which you began in us Lord I pray for every person hearing this myself included that you would decrease our worry, that you would decrease our angst, our anxiety, such that we could take all those massive secret things that we keep trying to look into and that we would stop, leave them at your feet and do the things you have told us to do. In that and in that alone, we will find peace. We thank you for Christ who has provided us with peace with God through the blood of the cross. We thank you for the salvation which you've so richly lavished upon us such that someday there will be a glorious grand opening when the secret things that belong to you are revealed to us. And we will be astounded at your wisdom. And I believe we will thank you for not having revealed those things to us. We could not have borne it. We could not have understood it. We are small. We are tiny in a massive universe. And so we thank you, Lord, for holding on to the hard things for us that we might not have to bear them. We thank you, Lord, for our glorious future. We would look to that, look to that hope. In the meantime, give us the spiritual strength and the determination to live faithfully before you day by day until that day when you open the secret things to us. We love you and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.